My name is Jolene Jackson. I am the National Vice President for Moms for America, and Vivian is uh, the uh, Moms Manager over all the cottage meetings and the Mom Links. Vivian comes out of San Antonio, Texas. I am just about 15 minutes from the White House in a town called Chevy Chase, Maryland about half a mile from the DC, Maryland line. I come from Utah today. I'm here on a family reunion and we're in an Airbnb. And I know you all probably might be at, uh, you know, a vacation spot, the lake, the pool, you know, grandma and grandpa's house, but you're here. And so I'm so delighted to have you uh, in our cottage meeting today. Well, it is summer and I know, you know, our, our schedules are taking us to and fro. Al and I, my husband drove across the country because we brought our big SUV because we were going to help move our married daughter and her husband. They're moving back to Bethesda, Maryland. And our car broke down in the middle of <laughs> Nebraska. There went the transmission. And so it was really literally automobiles, trains, planes, and automobiles getting here because there was there's no rental cars in the country. It's very hard to get rental cars right now. And so uh, God in heaven saw, somehow got us through. There was a lot of little tender mercies that got us here, but we are here at a family reunion in Utah uh, with, I come from a, a sibling uh, pool of nine brothers and sisters. And so even still, I, I know how busy I am this summer. I know how busy you are this summer with your family reunions and vacations and the kids taking you to and fro and the grandkids. But you know, as I thought about it, as I was up early this morning studying for the lesson and I'm kind of, I study every day. I thought, you know, this business of, of preparing ourselves and preparing our hearts and our minds to save this country really can't wait. And so you are here today amidst everything that's going on in your summer. You're here today. And that just speaks volumes to me about the caliber of women that are out there that love their families, that love their communities and that love this country and are willing to take the time to make this a priority. And so here we go, girls. We're on the very last section of the Charter of Freedom, the Constitution. Now, if I could just remind you, girls, that next week we're going to start a new seminar. We are almost halfway through the 16-week seminar. So we will start seminar number three. This is going to be a fascinating. I promise you, you do not want to miss this seminar because it tells you the attacks uh, uh, on the Constitution in America and how it has happened the unhinging and why we're in the boat that we are today. And we are, we're living through it. We're seeing it. We, and, and maybe we just don't understand how it happened, but it very systematically, there was a plan in place for over a century. And so, um, but we are on the tail end of the constitution. I mean, girls, I hope you have kind of a broad understanding now. This one-page outline that Sharon Cray, Julianne, uh, sister Sharon Cray puts out is so helpful. If you'll just print off like five copies and put them in your purses and your books, it will just help you. If you could just even memorize it, it just gives one-line explanations of what the seven articles are and one-line little explanations of what the 27 amendments are. So you have a kind of a working knowledge and that's not a mystery because most people, most mamas, the constitution is a complete mystery. And so if you can just kind of put it in a concise one page and then just keep this little pocket constitution and, and that along with this manual here, I have turned to this manual so much in my life when I've needed to break down the constitution in an understandable way, not only just for me, but 
to help mamas understand, well, how does the constitution even apply to me or to my children or to my schools or et cetera. And so, you know, as we're going through these manuals, I want you to write little notes in them. And I really commend so many of you. This is the second time you're going through the 16 week series. I've gone through it probably six, seven times now. And I just write each note. It's kind of like every time you read the scriptures or the Bible, you write a little notation. And as you keep reading it through the years, they're like your treasure troves because you can open up and you almost, you know, your little notations just help bring the word to life. And so I really would recommend writing little notes. These manuals are really important. They're only $12 a piece, but mine, I've been through several of them and they get kind of beat up, but uh, they just have been some of my best resources to teach my children. And when I've had to speak in the community, I'll go to these little um, manuals because they just break it down and put it in a simple, a simple way, not only for me to understand, but for me to then turn around and to teach to others. So I hope at this point we have kind of a, a working knowledge of the Constitution, the seven articles, and the 27 amendments. We're going to cover the last 13, or actually amendments 11 through 27 today. So remember last week we um, covered SASAR, and I think Vivian, Vivian, do you have that little? So this is the acronym that will help you uh, memorize the seven articles. So last week we um, covered the state's rights. Remember when we talked about what um, natural rights in the states are, citizens of those states versus acquired rights. And it was those acquired rights, the, the controversy about those acquired rights, which would be the means of ultimately same-sex marriage being passed uh, in 2013. And then um, the Fifth Amendment talks about how do we change the amendment? How do we change the Constitution? We amend it. Two-thirds of Congress has to, uh, you know, uh, approve the change. And then three-fourths of the state legislators, uh, legislatures have to uh, sign off on it. And, uh, and then we talked about Article 6, the Supremacy Clause. What is the supreme law of the land? It's not executive orders and it's not Supreme Court decisions. So we just need some strong enough constitutionally steeped enough governors to push back and say supreme law of the land is is you know the constitution it's treaties and it's uh it's the the state the statutes that come from the legislative branch and so um and then we talked about the bill of rights those are those are the amendments our founding fathers gave us and they also gave us 11 and 12 and we'll talk about 11 and 12 today but those 10 amendments were what they said was struck off by the hand of God. This is what God ins inspired them uh, uh, to write. And therefore, I think we can count on the heavens backing and protection if we live within that original intent of what you know, the founders gave us there. So that very first amendment is the, the right uh, to, um, uh, to exercise our religion the way that we want, that is, they felt that was our first freedom and that the government cannot establish a religion, meaning they had just broken away from England that had a state uh, at the Church of England and everyone had to subscribe to the Church of England and they did not want the federal government to come up and say there was one set way to worship God. They wanted the states, remember, the states and the people to decide how they were going to exercise their religions. And so, um, and we're seeing, you know, we talked about 
that uh, that that statement that Thomas Jefferson made when he was the president that there should be a separation of church and state, meaning state, the federal government shouldn't get involved with shouldn't get involved in how the the Supreme Court 150 years later really distorted that statement and and misapplied that statement and how the courts in the 1900 based on you know some of this misapplication of what Jefferson said that they began to uh, prohibit um, uh, you know school prayer in 1950 and prohibit Bible reading in schools and some schools you can't even I've my kids have been in schools where they can't even pledge because it mentions a God and you know clearly we learned in amendments nine and ten make sure you kind of drill those in your brain amendments nine and ten that they spelled out that the federal government should only have limited and carefully defined powers. Remember, they gave Congress 20 enumerated powers, no more, no less, and the president six powers and the courts 11 type of disputes. And, and, and if the constitution is silent on certain things, they wanted this, it to go back to the states and the people to determine. And so, you know, as you study the constitution, and you let it lapse over you and you keep studying it, you're gonna realize that the purpose of the constitution that the founders wrote for us was obviously to establish this land for its people, for its families, to protect the families of America because family is God's program. Look, he, he created Adam and Eve to multiply and replenish the earth, you know, so, so the family is God's program. And we know that Satan wants to dis destroy God's plan. So therefore, he wants to destroy the family. He wants people to think that their blessings don't come from God, but they go, they go to government. You need to look to government to help you, to give you money, to tell you what to do, to, how to raise your children. And the founders knew that you know, their highest priority was to affect and, and protect families. Because when you have strong families, you have strong societies. And when you have strong societies, you have strong nations. And so the enemies of freedom, particularly in this last decade, and we will talk about those enemies of freedom in seminar three, these enemies of freedom and America have wanted a more kingly government, where government is more centralized in Washington, D.C., where the executive branch, you know, is, is all powerful and all roads lead to Washington, D.C. to solve all your problems, that you have to look to the White House to have your problems solved. And I really do believe these enemies of America want the people, the citizens to stay ignorant, because ignorance, when you're ignorant, you're a little more fearful. And fear can turn to hate and hate can turn to anger and anger can turn to violence. And then you can tear down, you know, that structure. And so, you know, if we don't know the constitution mamas, we might have a tendency to be drawn into some of the emotionalism that we're seeing played out now with riots and, and you know, the, all the turmoil that we've seen in the last few years in our country. But moms, just remember prophecy. You know, we, we're women of God, so we're in the word, we're in the Bible. And Isaiah says, this nation shall endure. And in Second Chronicles, it says, God says, if you'll just turn to me and seek my face and repent from your wicked ways, I will heal your land. I mean, this is the promise. God is good on his word, girls. And so, you know, I think apathy will be our downfall. I think that's a part of our weakness in America. We're just a little checked out. Some have been. 
But, you know, we know our founding fathers knew that this was a promised and covenant land because when they came to America, they actually said in their writings, as you studied their found, these are original writings of theirs, that they felt that they were a remnant of the house of Israel and therefore they were going to be under that same protect protection of that Abrahamic covenant if they just continued to look to him. And they also, our founder said, they knew we had a manifest destiny to be an example and a blessing to the entire human race, that they knew that this was a special land and that we were to be a light on the hill, like it talks about in the New Testament. And so, mamas, you can see it happening that, you know, good mothers and fathers and grandmas and grandpas of the world are waking up, you know, the elections uh, uh, have, have got us worried, you know, we, we want free and honest and, and integritous elections and the pandemic has uh, has woken us up because we're we're feeling you know an encroachment uh, of the government to tell us what to do and just to go along and accept you know results and so you know we're seeing this rising up of people that love America and and want to be a part of fixing and healing this land just last night we're in Utah but my husband um spoke to a group of a couple hundred people on critical race theory. And these were moms and dads and elderly peaks, grandma and grandpa and young kids. And um, it was so wonderful to see them there and they're worried. And it's so wonderful to, you know, I had some mamas come up to me and said, we're watching your online cottage meeting. And one of the young mamas said, I, I have started a devotional because I keep hearing you talk about it, Jolene. And then another little uh, lady that was a grandma said, we started a, a group of, of mostly, you know, old folks, grandmas and grandpas studying the 5,000 year leave. And, uh, and, and, you know, I, I think of little Tyler, who's in my neck of the woods, she has a, started a cottage meeting in Loudoun County in Fairfax County. And they were, um, uh, some of her group was at a rally on Friday and, and, you know, just dreadful things were said by a woman who uh, represents the NA, NAACP about, you know, parents, uh, parents like Tyler, you know, mothers of America, parents should all die, she actually said. And so, you know, no, girls, it's it's not going to be easy. You know, we're going to stand on this wall and we're going to we're going to say, Lord, here, send me. But remember, Jefferson said we're not going to save this country on a feather bed. And so, girls, just know that, you know, the battle might feel a little little a little heated at times. But, you know, we're, we're going to lose some battles sometimes, too. We are losing battles. But like I said before, God. God's okay with losing battles. He just wants to know that we're willing to fight those battles because in the end he prevails, he wins. So we just got to make sure we're on the right side. And so we are here today. We're on the right side. Lord, help us figure out this last part of the constitution. Here we go. Section four, seminar two, get your little pens ready, write some little notes. So uh, amendments 11 and 12 were actually given to us by the founding fathers. The 11th Amendment uh, came at the time when George Washington was still president. And, and what they were beginning to see were citizens of other states were trying to sue other states. And um, and there was a, a, a man, a citizen in South Carolina that was trying to sue the state of Georgia. And the federal government got involved and compelled Georgia to respond to that suit. And so, you know, the states were concerned that, um, that this amendment was necessary in order to protect kind of that supreme power and authority within the state and, and not have the 
federal courts get involved and say, you have to hear, you know, this suit from a citizen from another state. So this amendment basically just was a restriction on the federal courts from them getting involved with cases between an individual and a state. So if you live in California and you have a conflict with the state of Oregon, you have to actually go to Oregon and go through the Oregon courts to have your um, issue resolved instead of, you know, being forced uh, to, to have the federal government get involved and, um, and so forth. So amendment number 12 was also came forth under the, the founding fathers because right off the bat with the electoral college, they they realized there was a weakness here because the founders didn't intend for our nation to have political parties. But right with the second election between um, Adams and Jefferson, remember initially in the constitution in article two, it said that each elector, the different electors from the states had two votes. And the person that got the most votes is the president. The person that got the second most votes is the vice president. But what happened is when Thomas Jefferson became, um, or no, when John Adams became the second president and Jefferson got the second of uh, most votes, Adams was more of a federalist and Jefferson was more of an anti-federalist. So they didn't work so well together. And then when Jefferson became third, pre third president and Aaron Burr became his vice president because he got the second most votes, they didn't work together either. I mean, Aaron Burr was a rascal. Remember, he's the one who killed Alexander Hamilton in, in a duel, and his career was pretty much over after that. And so Amendment 12 just provides for separate ballots for a president and vice president, and there's going to be some continual tinkering of the electoral college. And I think, I think that's why it's sometimes kind of confusing to really explain it, but there is great wisdom in that electoral college and every Tuesday, we have a little fellow that's giving a seminar for the next four weeks. And it's also recorded if you want to listen to his seminars on our momsforamerica.us um, website. And also, girls, like I told you, Prager University has a one minute, a five minute and a 20 minute little quick video explaining the Electoral College. And so um, anyway, so that 12th Amendment was just a little bit of a tweak on not having a, a mixed party of a president and a vice president. Now, the 13th Amendment came just six months after Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, but Abraham Lincoln got the 13th Amendment going. It was just ratified six months after he was killed. And the 13th Amendment just abolishes slavery. Now, two years before this 1865 amendment, President Lincoln had put forth the Emancipation Proclamation which was kind of like a presidential proclamation or an executive order that said, we're going to free all the slaves, the 3 million plus slaves in the United States. But there was some doubt as to whether this proclamation was within the constitutional powers of the president. And so this amendment kind of settled that constitutional question permanently of abolishing slavery. 13th amendment abolishes slavery. So the 11th Amendment gives states immunity. The 12th Amendment, a tweak on the um, Electoral College. The 13th Amendment abolishes slavery. So see in my mind, this is how I have memorized. So I just use a few words in my mind's eye to kind of explain what each amendment is. And so that's all you have to do when you memorize it. You don't have to memorize paragraphs, just memorize, abolishes slavery. The 14th Amendment uh, gives natural citizen rights to former black slaves. So see how that's how I, when I say memorize the constitution, that's how you would memorize the amendments. 
So the 14th Amendment said that um, that former black slaves are automatically citizens with equal rights, which cannot be abridged without due process of law. So any slaves that uh, were born or, or, you know, after the Civil War, they're automatically um, citizens and they have full full rights of, of any citizen of the United States. The 14th Amendment is problematic because we know what originally, why this was put forth, but the courts have distorted and misapplied the 14th Amendment because it, it, it wasn't written wasn't written very succinctly. And so there's been a lot of mischief uh, that the courts have used the 14th Amendment. So in recent years, for example, um, children of illegal uh, uh, people that have come into the country can bypass the naturalization or immigration laws because they are born here in the United States. And so children of illegals have all the privileges uh, uh, that citizens would have. And so, you know, what the argument might be was, well, hey, that that discriminates against those that are trying to come legally into the country who are abiding by the law and are stuck in countries where maybe there's dictatorship and corruption and they want the same blessings of liberty, but uh, illegal people entering are being rewarded and protected under this 14th Amendment and it wouldn't seem to be fair to those that are trying to work within the law. And so... um, what the 14th amendment does is it, it actually, it has gotten involved in the States and, and they're trying to control their and supervise the States and, and how that is uh, turn the page. uh, The second part of this 14th amendment says that no state shall make or enforce any law, which can abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person the equal protection of the law. All right. So it really, the federal government was meant to be a backstop if the states were not going to give rights to black people. Okay. Black former slaves, black citizens. And so this provision was meant to punish some Southern states that weren't necessarily complying with abolishing slavery or giving, you know, uh, former slaves equal access to their rights. And so, um, but what happened from the wording in this 14th Amendment, 60 years later, there was going to be a Supreme Court decision called uh, the uh, the U.S. versus the Gitlow. And the court now was going to start using some of this language to punish states if they didn't provide equal rights to everyone uh, in their state. So remember, this is the rule of law that the Supreme Court most recently in 2013 used to legalize same-sex marriage. You know, they're saying, look, if you have same-sex marriage in Massachusetts, but you don't in Wyoming, that's a violation of their equal protection uh, 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 acknowledgement of their marriage. And that's not right, Wyoming. And so they just, you know, they came in and uh, it was a means really now for the federal government to supervise in what the states are desiring, you know, for, for their citizens in their states. And so you can see that this is contrary to what the founders wanted, because if the founders wanted 
if this constitution was silent on something, then it was to go back to the states to determine how the citizens of that state wanted their laws to be enacted. So you can see the courts have used some of these phrases, equal protection clause and due process of law, and have misapplied the intention, which was to give former slaves equal protection to their rights as any other citizen, all right? And it's just opened the door for the federal government to punish the states. And so we've seen that in recent years and in recent court decisions. So the 14th Amendment is needs to be rewarded, reworded. It needs to be fixed a little bit. And we'll talk about in that in the fourth seminar when we talk about healing of uh, healing of America and healing our constitution and healing the courts and healing, you know, uh, uh, those branches of government. Okay, the 15th Amendment. So 13, 14, and 15 came right after the Civil War, okay? And, and so primarily ensures, you know, rights for uh, Black citizens. The 15th Amendment says that Blacks have the right to vote. And this is a good thing. I'm not saying it's not a, a good thing. But you can see what is happening now. The federal government is, uh, is beginning to grow their federal power and to set a new precedent for a, a kind of a new way of thinking that expands their power by kind of diminishing the state's rights and telling the states what they must do. Because remember, in the very first article in section two, it tells us states are to, to, de to determine who can vote. So in the very beginning, states, you know, were we're told it's up to you, you know? And uh, it's interesting at the time that this 15th amendment was written that says that the rights of the citizens um, shall not be denied or abridged by any state on the account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. But it, it's interesting when this amendment, the 15th amendment was adopted in, in 1870, um, no states, one state was just thinking of the idea of having women voting. So no women were allowed to vote or, you know, had were voting, but, but this amendment now said that, you know, no one, that you can't be denied the, the right to vote based on your race or color. It is interesting. We're going to talk about, um, you know, the states starting to evolve. And as, as the people kind of pressured the states, to, for change, then the, the governors and the legislators listened, and and before the um, the the uh, 19th Amendment that gave the right to vote to women, 20 states are already had women voting, you know, and so some might think, look, you, you know, ultimately some of these changes would have come about without amendments because the people would have just advocated it for it. And, and, you know, the elected officials represent the people and want to get reelected. So they listen to the people. And so, you know, did we have to, you know, have an amendment? Because what, what these amendments did is it, it grew the power of the federal government and began to diminish the power of the states. You can just see that starting to happen. And we're going to really see that happen 43 years later in 1913 with the 16th Amendment. Now, mamas, the 16th and 17th amendments are some of the most egregious, uninspired amendments that really disrupted the shift of the balance of power in the federal government and the, uh, the power between the federal government and the state government. And so 
listen up to the 16th and 17th Amendment. I had to have this explained to me over and over again before I really began to connect the dots that the 16th and 17th Amendment uh, put us on a bad path. The 16th Amendment put us on the road to big government and really socialism, which is where the government controls all, a lot, mostly everything. And, um, and so what it says is Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes on incomes from whatever sources derived without appointment amongst the several states and without regard to the census or enumeration. Now, remember, our founding fathers intended the states to be in charge of of how they were going to tax their people. So if Maryland had 8% of the population of America, they would re be responsible for 8% of the federal budget. And that governor and that legislature would decide how are we going to tax the people to come up with our 8% that we're due to pay, you know, our, our share to the federal government. But what the 16th government did is it reached in and, and now it established a direct tax on the people. So the federal government can directly tax people. And, and it says that, uh, remember in article one, it says that a direct tax must be apportioned to the states according to the population, not according to the individual um, income. So amendment 16 revokes that part of article um, one section nine there. And, and so, and then what happened with the 16th amendment and then something happened with the 17th amendment that I'll, I'll tell you about in a minute, but uh, about 20 years after the 16th and 17th amendment, the Supreme court uh, got involved with the Butler case and the Butler case in the appendix in the back of seminar two, it really gives you a couple pages of a really good explanation of the Butler case. So read it. It's a really important case because that Butler case that the Supreme Court heard in 1936 virtually amended the constitution by giving a, a, a judicial opinion saying that the uh, government could tax and spend for whatever they considered beneficial to promote the general welfare. Remember the general welfare clause in the preamble, which meant not specific welfare and not like certain states would get certain help from government, but just the general well-being. They're just going to make sure this is a safe place, to, you know, the general welfare of this country. So what this, the Butler case did is said that the whatever Congress thinks is important, the government they can they can use because they're now have accrued all this money because now they're taxing people individually. So the 16th Amendment was really some people considered it a program to soak the rich because the Constitution said in Article One that it should be a uniform fair tax. But with the 16th Amendment, they began to implement a graduated income scale. So those people that made more money. Um, their their wealth actually is less sacred because they're going to tax people at higher rates. So that's not a uniform fair tax, is it? And some people would say this graduated tax scale, if you make more, you have to pay more, is a violation of my equal protection clause because I'm being, I'm being punished because I make this amount versus people that make that amount pay less. That's, that's not equal protection of my wealth. 
And so really what it did is it gave the federal government a, a, a way to tax, 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 grow the federal government because now they're taking in all this revenue. And then when you've got all this money, then they want to spend, spend, spend. They want to come up with all kinds of programs. And members of Congress like this idea that, oh, I can take some, some money, some goodies home to my constituents and tell them, look what I did. I got all these monies for you and therefore you should reelect me. So, you know, it was a way for house members at least to go, oh, let's, yeah, let's tax the people, you know, directly. We'll get a lot of money and then I can bring home some goodies and I'll, I'm reassured, you know, that I will stay in office for a long time. And this wouldn't have happened if the 17th Amendment uh, hadn't have passed. So what is the 17th Amendment? The 16th and 17th Amendment were passed just within a few months of each other. The 17th Amendment, this is kind of meaty, meaty uh, stuff we're teaching here, remove that vertical um, check and balance from the federal government and the states. Now, if you watch, did you do your homework last week when I asked you to watch a little, a two-part video called The Tale of Two Constitutions, the tale, T-A-L-E, the, uh, the uh, two constitutions, the constitutions from the viewpoint of what the founders intended, and the constitution we have today, and some of it is primarily because of the 16th and 17th amendment altered the balance of power. And we no longer, because of the 17th amendment, we no longer have the Senator who is kind of the watchdog for the states on that wall and, and keeping uh, uh, the government from encroaching in on, this, on um, the states. So um, up until this point, um, it's, it's, it's important to kind of understand the historic, uh, historical background of this amend, amendment, amendment, which changed the fact that senators now were going to be elected by the popular vote because up until 1913, the senators were elected by the state legislature, okay? Because the senator was beholden to the state. He represented the state. He worked for the state legislature. And so what this amendment did uh, is removed um, uh, who voted, who put that senator into place. It's now just the popular vote, just like our congressmen, our two-year representatives are voted by the popular vote, the senators and the founders did not intend for senators to be voted by popular vote. George Washington was one of the foremost proponents of a Senate with members appointed by the state legislature. Now remember Jefferson was over in France representing the US when the constitution was written. And so when he came back, he asked, why, why are the senators not elected by the people? And you might recall, uh, I've told this little story before, um, that Washington told him, he said, well, why do you pour your hot drink, your tea into your saucer, uh, and, you know, your little cup before drinking it? And Jefferson replied, well, to cool it off. And he said, well, uh, Washington said, that is why the Senate, that is what the Senate is for. The Senate is to cool down any hot-headed or imprudent legislation from the House. Because remember the three-headed eagle? The, the House is the wing of compassion. They're, they're only in office every two years, so they want to quickly solve solve problems so they can get reelected. But the Senate is in every six years. And so they kind of like let cooler heads prevail. And, and they remember, they ask, well, wait a minute, how much is this program going to cost? 
Does it infringe upon the rights of our citizens in our state? Is this really needed? And so the senators, because they weren't beholden to the people, uh, they were beholden to the state legislature and, and, and they would go, you know, they were looking out for their states. And so the purpose of the Senate was to veto any radical movements designed to break down property rights or states' rights and the established order of the constitutional government. So inasmuch as the states were assigned the responsibility of uh, paying also for the federal government, the Senate was also given the power to veto the federal budget. And senators to, were to represent the states as the sovereign entity, kind of like the, the ultimate power in, in the United States. And the founders decided the best way to have this uh, be achieved would to, be ha would to have the state legislatures appoint these senators. And so um, the House members, you need to understand for about 20 years, there was this populist movement to get the senators elected by the people and removed from the state legislature. And the House would always vote yes, but the Senate for 20 years would just ignore, you know, this, this legislation that came around for 20 years. But the 17th Amendment was finally pushed through. Why would the senators, you know, say, okay, yeah, we'll have the people vote us in instead of our state legislature? Well, what happened uh, in 1911, both the House and the Senate passed this amendment and three-fourths of the states ratified it. But there was a corrupt legislature in Illinois, Wendy, Illinois. There were some, you had some corrupt legislators that were taking bribes to put their senators in. And so there was a movement underfoot for 20 years. And so they saw this as the perfect opportunity to convince the people that, oh, this was needed. Now, instead of just solving the problem and removing those corrupt, you know, state legislators in Illinois, that was the impetus to, you know, kind of win the hearts uh, of the citizens and the elected officials to go, okay, yeah, let's pass the 17th amendment. And who was behind this popular movement to have this? It was the entities that we're gonna learn about in seminar three. It was these nonprofit foundations. It was the Rockefellers and the, um, uh, the Carnegie's and the Rothschilds and, and they, they felt that the Senate was too slow. These men who were, you know, almost running the country with some of their, their businesses didn't like the fact that they couldn't also buy off. They couldn't donate to their, the senators' campaigns because it wasn't the people that elected them. It was that they were beholden to their state legislatures. And so some of these wealthy um, entities couldn't influence the senators with PAC money or special interest money um, because you know, once again, they were elected by the state legislature. So, so senators now today, because of the 17th amendment are elected by the people the first time, but the second time a senator comes around six years later, when he runs for reelection, you know how he wins. It's from PAC money and special interest money from these tax exempt organizations who now they know they can kind of get them in the pocket and pay them off and they'll vote more favorably, uh, you know, to some of these, you know, nonprofit entities or uh, these huge industries. And, um, and so instead of the senators coming home every weekend and reporting before the 17th amendment, reporting to the state legislature on the federal bills that were being proposed and 
should I vote for this? Asking the legislature, should, should I, how should I represent our state on this one? Uh, because remember, it was the states that were paying for all the federal programs. And so the senator would come home and say, should, should, should we pass this law? You know, this is how it's going to impact our state. Uh, so the, the senators don't do that anymore because they're not really beholden to the state legislature. They're actually more beholden to the monies that they're getting. Because did you know, on an average, it costs $16 million today to run for the state Senate. And most of these senators aren't independently wealthy. You know, they didn't bring money to their positions. And so they have to kind of cozy up to, to unions and special interest groups. So we think we're voting for these Congress people and these senators, but we, we might not. Now think of those six or seven senators uh, six or seven months ago that voted, Republican senators that voted to remove President Trump. He was impeached by the House. And there were six, I think there's seven Republican senators that actually voted to remove him, to convict him. Imagine if those senators had to go back home before that vote and ask them, should, should we, can, can I vote? To re, does our state want me to vote to remove the president. I know for a fact, being here in Utah, that the state of Utah was not happy at all that Mitt Romney, a senator from Utah, voted to remove uh, Trump from office. So imagine if Mitt Romney knew that if he voted against what the state and state legislature wanted him to do, he, he, they wouldn't put him into office again. So he would be way more beholden to do what the state legislature and what the people want him to do. And so in 1913, both the 16th Amendment and the 17th Amendment were passed all right, the 16th Amendment allowed the federal government to directly tax the people and not wait for the states to have a voice. And the 17th Amendment removed the senators on that wall of protection for the states. Um, uh, they can no, no longer do the really, the senators feel too beholden to ask the states, you know, is this going to infringe upon our rights? Can we afford this? And also 1913 was a bad year because the Federal Reserve uh, was introduced uh, under Woodrow Wilson. And we're going to learn about what the Federal Reserve is in Seminar 13, but the Federal Reserve really pretty much, uh, we handed over our finances of our country to private banks. The Federal Reserve's name does not live up to its name because it is not federal. It is private international bankers and there is no reserve because we began to be pulled off the gold and silver standard around this time. So there is no money backing up, you know, the, the money that, that they're in the notes that they're loaning out. And so we'll talk more about that. But 1913 was not a good year um, for America. Okay. Whew, that's kind of some meaty stuff, girls. Do we need to get a, get a cold drink or wipe our brow or something? We're going to be able to get through the rest of the amendments fairly quickly. The 18th Amendment uh, came about just a few years later. And what that did is it prohibited um, alcohol and the movement of alcohol between states and even uh, uh, internationally, the transportation of intoxicating um, liquors and the exportation, exportation of that. So... You know, this really came to be this amendment to prohibit, you know, intoxicating liquors and alcohol. Um, after the Civil War, there was a campaign called the Long Temperance Campaign uh, that began 
um, prior to the Civil War, actually. And this long temperance campaign was really kind of like a, a social movement against the consumption of alcoholic beverages. And they this campaign cited the negative effects of alcohol on your health and your personality and family lives. And to be honest with you, I, I don't drink. And so I, I'm like, yeah, I think alcohol can be really destructive. And I, we've seen it, my husband's father struggled with alcoholism his whole life. So, you know, I understand, you know, how the adversary can really use alcohol to destroy the lives of people and families. And so this is kind of what this long temperance campaign was about. But, uh, you know, so a few states uh, adopted state prohibition of alcohol. And then in 1917, World War I is now raging. And so Congress passed the Lever Act. And, and it was a, a wartime food control measure and alcohol beverages were outlawed because they said it was a waste of resources because they needed to use alcohol for munitions and manufacturers. So all the states went dry during World War I. And then just um, a, a few years later, uh, they actually made it an amendment and prohibited um, alcohol in the constitution. Now, this amendment why it might've worked if it just had uh, prohibited hard liquor, but it also included lighter alcoholic beverages such as beer and wine. And, and there were many immigrant families that had come to America that, you know, drinking wine at dinner was just a part of, you know, their culture and their heritage. And so people began to make home brews. I know this isn't really that important, but I, got, <laughs> I kind of think it's interesting. So people began to make home brews. And because of the scarcity of alcohol, uh, we began to see pop-up bootlegging and speakeasies, um, these clubs that would sell illegal alcoholic beverages. And it kind of became a part of the American style, this underground world of, you know, alcohol production. And then the prices began to go up because it was so scarce. And then the gangsters entered in. And then so you see the gangsters getting involved in, in you know, in this world. And, um, and they say that the Kennedys got rich uh, at this time uh, because they got involved in um, <laughs> bootlegging and alcohol. And that's why some will say that the Kennedys never were accepted in certain circles of society because they made their money through these illegitimate sources. And so um, this created a big problem here in America. And we're going to see 14 years later, there's going to be a, a, an amendment, the 21st amendment, that's just going to repeal this 18th amendment that came, uh, was adopted in, um, uh, eight, in 1919. But, you know, I think from, from what we see with this amendment, that history shows that when the federal government forces people to do what is right, uh, you know, the freedom to choose, it, it doesn't work, does it? And so maybe the freedom to choose is the best workable option because the constitution does not talk about alcohol. It should have been the states to determine their alcohol um, laws and allow the states to determine. This is what our founders wanted. They wanted the states to determine their standards of morality 
decency and safety. And this amendment kind of backfired on them and they're gonna to have to repeal it in just a few amendments. So if the constitution is silent on an issue, the founders wanted the states to determine. Okay, so we're at the 19th amendment. This was passed in 1920. So last year we celebrated the 100th anniversary of women getting the vote. And I had to speak at Independence Hall uh, last year in commemoration of the 100 year anniversary. And I was talking about, look, mothers, we secured the right to vote 100 years ago, but now we need to protect the vote, uh, you know, protect the integrity uh, of, um, of our elections. And that was just right, you know, shortly um, after the elections in November. And so it's interesting to know that when this amendment was passed in 1920, 20 states, women were already voting, you know, because the constitution already gave the states the rights to determine who could vote. And so the major argument against the women's suffragettes or women voting uh, was that, look, the man is already representing the family. He votes for the whole family. But then the argument that finally won the approval of women being voted as an amendment was that, you know, maybe women might come up and come in and clean up some of the politics because politics are messy and they're dirty sometimes and women would bring a level of civility. And so the rights of the women to vote, even though quite a few states, women were already voting because that was the right of the states to determine who votes. And they also hope that uh, because women, you know, really make up, half of the population that um, that we would see a greater turnout of voting. But it's interesting, historically, um, the mom vote or the women vote has always been much lower than men. And so um, Moms for America, a decade ago, had an initiative called the mom vote, and we still have it. Every election is called the mom vote. Because so many women today, and you might hear this, they'll go, oh, I'm just not into politics. I don't like the nastiness of politics. But, you know, obviously, it's it's not even politics. It's just, it's our part of saving America. It's our part of our civic duty, you know, that if we're going to maintain what our founders gave us, we have to elect morally strong and virtuous leaders. And if morally strong and virtuous mamas don't go out and vote, how are we going to, you know, elect morally strong and virtuous leaders that will ensure the Republic remains strong and true. And so mamas, we got to vote. And I have a feeling you are voting mamas, you know, okay. The 20th amendment, let's see where we are. The 20th amendment uh, is the lame duck amendment. And so um, this is an interesting one. Uh, the constitution said that um, the government would begin their sessions in March and, um, but they didn't run year round. Like the legislative branch didn't run year round. It was only just for a short time. And, and so they would be elected in November. And, and if, it were, if they were elected in an even year, they were required to attend the next session until their term expired. And so some of these legislators, uh, particularly in the House, um, would have to stay in for 13 months after they had lost the election. And so uh, they knew that that wasn't gonna quite work right. And so what this amendment did, is it, it, it set the time for Congress to begin to convene the 1st of January. Let me just read this. The next Congress would not assemble in a regular session until the December following March 4th. So they weren't able to take office for 13 months. So I explained that. And so what they did is they um, 
they moved it from March until January 3rd and for presidents to begin their term instead of in March on the 20th of January. And so that just eliminated um, some of these elected officials serving for 13 months in the house after they lost or for a four month gap from the time the new president was elected in November until he took office in March. Now remember for the president, they had that four month gap because it took that much time to shut down their life and to, you know, take the horse and buggy or the train to Washington DC. But with modern communication and transportation, we don't need a four month lag. And so I know, uh, um, they probably didn't anticipate fraudulent elections because I, I know many people wish that we'd had two more months to investigate the elections and not have the president put in until March originally how they had intended the constitution. So this 20th amendment just eliminates some of the, the lame duck period of uh, someone who's lost in office. It's interesting when I was in um, Abraham Lincoln's town uh, last week in Springfield, Illinois, when he was elected president, he left his little home in February, even though he didn't have to take the oath until March, you know, this was before the 20th amendment because he was, he took the train <laughs> to Washington DC. And so it just took, it was just a little bit slower going. And so they just kind of tweaked this as, as you know, technology and transportation improved with this 20th amendment. So, you know, these are, these type of amendments really aren't probably going to change the way you do business as a mama and a daddy, but you know, it's just good to have a working knowledge of these 27 amendments. So the 21st Amendment, 14 years later, repealed that prohibition. And, and note in that 21st Amendment, it doesn't necessarily legalize uh, alcohol, but it just simply turned the problem back to the states to determine their alcohol laws. So if once again, if the Constitution is silent, that, you know, it should be the people in the states that determine it. Remember in, in Amendment 9 and 10, limited and carefully defined powers should be given to the federal government. Everything else, let the people uh, and the states uh, determine. And so we see that with the 21st Amendment. The 22nd Amendment um, set the term of the president to two terms. Up until 1951, a president could run as many times as he wanted, but everyone just kind of took their cues and their example from George Washington, who served for two terms and then stepped down. So every president uh, up until that point, up until 1951, served two terms. But along comes um, Roosevelt and um, Franklin D. Roosevelt, and he has not run, he runs for one term, two terms, three terms. He is on his fourth term. So he dies shortly into his fourth term, but he would have served 14 years. And you know, under Fred, uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt, he was the author of the New Deal, New Deal and he left legacy of big government. Boy, he, he grew his executive branch very, uh, became very powerful under him, 12, 13 years in office. So shortly after he died, they came up with this amendment to nix this problem uh, in the bud and only have presidents serve for two terms. So that's the 22nd Amendment. The 23rd Amendment talks about how Washington, D.C. 
um, could be given some voting rights, all right? They were gonna be now be given three electoral votes, electoral votes uh, for the presidential election every four years. Now this goes against what the founders wanted. They wanted that 10 mile radius around Washington DC, our capital, to be a neutral zone because they had seen the storm center and violence that had erupted in Philadelphia in our early history around when Philadelphia was our, our national capital. And so this 23rd amendment really went against what our founders wanted because we, we gave um, Washington DC also um, a representative, her name is Eleanor Holmes Norton. She's 83 years old. She has served in that position as a representative for the District of Columbia for over 30 years. So she can vote in committee, but she can't actually vote on the floor. But um, because DC has become so political now because they do have voting rights, you know, they have electors and, and they have her and, uh, Washington DC is one of the most politically charged nuts where I've lived for, you know, about 22 years. I live there now in Washington DC in a suburb of DC. I live about 20 minutes from the white house. And, uh, I'm telling you, I've lived here under five presidents. I've lived in Washington DC under Clinton, Bush, Obama, Trump, and now Biden. And because it's, it's, it's such a politically charged liberal leaning, um, area, uh, completely against what our founders intended, that uh, Republican presidents, you rarely see them out. But like pre when President Clinton was president, I ate one time at a restaurant in Georgetown and there was the president of the United States and President Obama, he would always go Christmas shopping at Union Station, a popular place where we all go. Uh, president Bush, I, I really didn't see him around town too much. And President Trump, you never saw him anywhere in Washington, D.C. because it was so hostile towards him. The only place that President Trump could go out and eat out was his hotel, the Trump Hotel on Pennsylvania Avenue. If you, if you uh, ever go to Washington, D.C., go to the Trump Hotel. It's a beautiful hotel. And there's a steakhouse there called BLT Prime. And there's actually a table that is known as the President's Table. And so the only place he could eat out when he was president was at his own restaurant and he had a special table that was reserved for him. And to be honest with you, President Biden, President Biden, he's been in seven months, but I rarely hear of him out and about on the town. And believe me, you know, he's very beloved in Washington, DC. So he'd have an easy go of it, but he, he, he stays close to the White House. So anyways, that's an interesting amendment. What has come from that when we began to get um, Washington DC voting rights, it became a very political, politicized uh, part of the country. And certainly during the Black Lives Matters um, uh, rallies, it, 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 it was a really interesting place to be. Okay, the 24th amendment uh, just declared that there cannot be any poll taxes on people, they couldn't be assessed a little tax to be able to go vote. So in the South, they were charging the little tax and it was just a few dollars, but this amendment said, you can't do that because that might discourage both poor blacks and white people from voting if they have to pay a few bucks to go vote. So, so they said no poll taxes. And then the 25th amendment is the presidential disability clause. And um, this, is a, this is a bad amendment and this amendment should probably just go away because what it does is it provides the, the vice president can actually declare the president unfit and have him removed if 
the vice president initiates this and can get eight out of the 15 cabinet members in the president's cabinet to say he's unfit, you can actually remove the president. And so after the president is ousted, it says in the constitution, uh, the vice president then assumes power. And if the president says, wait a minute, I'm not unfit, the house and the Senate has to determine, is he fit? But for 20, they have 21 days to determine if he's fit or unfit. So for 21 days, you can have a, a vice president and the new person that vice president puts in as his or her new vice president, completely unelected people running the country. And so, you know, it's a, it, this amendment is poorly written and poorly structured and it gives a lot of opportunity for um, nefarious maneuvering. And we saw this when President Trump was um, impeached uh, seven months ago. Pelosi uh, wanted to declare Trump unfit, but in the constitution, it says that the vice president has to initiate this and Pence you know, wanted nothing to do with that. So it didn't get very far, but this amendment is fraught with peril. And so it needs to be removed, it's dangerous. And I, I mean, just imagine what if this amendment were in place when Lincoln was the president, where most of his cabinet was completely against what he was doing. I mean, they would have just removed Abraham Lincoln and said that he was unfit. And, um, and so this amendment tends to encourage a type of political maneuvering, which gave, which, which we saw for the first time in the U.S., history, um, an unelected president and an unelected vice president, Gerald Ford and Nelson Rockefeller after um, Nixon stepped down. So this disability um, amendment was passed a few years after Kennedy was assassinated, but we're already told in article one that, you know, if, if a president dies or is incapacitated, the vice president takes its place. So that is already addressed in the constitution in article one. So we really didn't need this, you know, article to tell us, you know, but, but this, this amendment, excuse me, this amendment came a few years. Kennedy was assassinated in 1963 and this amendment was put forth in 1967, but it, it, it just opens the door for some um, nefarious maneuvering. Let's just put it that way. Okay, the 26th Amendment lowers the voting age from 21 down to 18. And so, you know, this amendment was passed for, through, this was the most quick moving amendment uh, out of all the amendments thus far. And, you know, opponents of this amendment felt that it was developing a, a block of voters at a young age when they were often kind of susceptible to emotional appeal and political activism. So, you know, that kind of 18 to 24 range. And, and to be honest with you, <laughs> that age range usually votes more uh, a Democrat than Republican. And it's, they say, who got President Obama elected because it really widened his uh, voter base. And uh, President Biden in this voter, age of 18 to 24, 11% more in that block uh, of voters voted for him. 65% of that voting age voted for the president. But nevertheless, the argument of lowering the voting age to 18 was, look, if these young people are old enough to fight in war, then they should be old enough to vote. I mean, if the president can send you to war, you should at least be able to vote 
uh, for him. And so this voted, uh, lowered the voting age. And then the 27th Amendment, sweetheart, the 27th Amendment actually was put forth 203 years ago by President Mad or, um, Madison. And he just said members of Congress should not give themselves a raise. <laughs> There's my little girl should not give themselves a raise while in office. So it took 203 years to ratify what Madison put forth, but that became uh, an amendment in 1992. Okay, girls, we did it. Do you feel like constitutional scholars now? <laughs> Do you at least have kind of a working understanding of the seven articles and the 27 amendments? And when you hear things in the news, what's constitutional or what's not, you can actually go back and go, well, what did the founders intend? And what, what came after our founders that maybe superseded what they gave us and what we're now working under, you know, some intentions that were never meant to be from our original constitution. So it just, you know, when someone tells you what your rights are, what your high, Miss Maria, I can see you in the back there. <laughs> when um, that's my 13th, that's the baby. So, so when people tell you what your rights are, instead of just blindly going along, you can go, Oh, wait a minute here. I'm going to refer to my constitutional manual. And so what this overview of the constitution from the viewpoint of the founders and then what came out after the founders, I hope will refresh our understanding of, of, that our history and our founders and kind of help us to remember what their original success formula for freedom and prosperity and peace was. Because remember under the constitution that they gave us and those prosperity economics, yeah. we went, for, you know, we only had 6% of the population of the world, but we were producing over 50% of the world's wealth. So something beautiful was happening, uh, you know, with this limited government and this free market that you know they put forth and um, hopefully it gives us a better understanding of how we can solve some problems major problems that we have in the world today could we go back to when it was working really well with what they gave us and so you know having this opportunity to, to study the constitution as established by our founders helps us now to, to, to kind of weigh the other 15 amendments that came after our founding fathers. And in seminar three, we're going to learn about these major problems that we're facing today as a result from changing uh, the constitution under some of these uninspired amendments. So, so we're going to see how these organizations that didn't love America wanted to change the direction of America and they were going to use their wealth and their power and their influence to serve their own needs. And we're going to see this campaign of millions of dollars that were spent defaming and defiling our founding fathers and making Jefferson and Frank, Ben Franklin and, and George Washington to be hypocrites and perverts and degenerates and, and racists. Because if we can minimize their lives and their character, we can then minimize their teachings and writings. And we're not studying what they intended and what they gave us, you know, and what they established. And we, we're also going to figure out uh, what happened to our education system and how some of these reformers in the late 1800s and early 1900s, Horace Mann, John Dewey, do these names sound familiar? I mean, we revere these men. We have 
umpteen schools named after these educational reformers that wanted to introduce and did introduce godless philosophy, you know, and wanted to take away moral education. Both of these men were atheists and they're held up today, you know, as these great educational reformers. Um, girls, I think I've talked about this book a time or two. It's called The Promises of the Constitution. And it's just one page vignettes that explain all different types of aspects throughout our history. And on page 250, uh, Pam is the author, she beautifully explains these um, godless philosophers that we're going to talk about in seminar three. You can buy this uh, book, uh, Moms for America. Remember, we make like uh, uh, hardly any money, about 50 cents off books. So we're not, I don't recommend books because we're trying to make money at Moms for America, but that these are really good resources that I have used through the years that, to teach my children uh, in an easy, concise way. You can't quite see it, but it's only a page and a half and I can explain kind of complicated things in a real simple way. So I'd recommend this book at some point, add it to your I Love America library. And so girls, we're halfway through our 16 week seminar of Healing of America. Uh, we're eight weeks into the, um, the 16 weeks. And so remember, don't get discouraged about our constitution because 85% of our constitution is intact. About 15% is, is become disrupted from some inspired amendments in, in court cases. And so, you know, there's two ways to get a nation to change. We just repent on our own. We kind of wake up from our slumber and we go, oh yeah, I got I to gotta rise up. This is not right, Lord, please forgive me. You know, please, we need your help to heal this land. Or secondly, we can have some sort of foreign government intervention or internal internal collapse, and we don't want that to happen. And so we're we're trying to learn the constitution and use the tool upon which the God will use to heal our land is this is this inspired constitution. And mamas, I'm here to tell you that it will be the women of America, it will be the mothers and the grandmothers of America that are going to lead this change. Because, you know, we have had this protective umbrella of the Constitution over our home, protecting us and allowing us to live our lives and to worship and to live the ideals and values we believe freely. But we're feeling these fiery darts of the world penetrate directly into our home. And we're feeling the, the protection of the Constitution uh, being removed. And, you know, we're, we're seeing it with bad legislation and overreaching court decisions and big tech and godless education and just general moral decay and mask mandates and vaccine mandates and censorship and corrupt ele elections. These are the fire darts that we're feeling come in on our home, penetrating into our home. And, you know, as we wake up and we go, wait a minute, we're not feeling as safe. We're worried about the future of our children and our grandchildren. And remember, when we're feeling this way, what do we do to stay anchored in hope? Sweetheart, you, can, you look to God. You look to God. You don't look to Washington, D.C. to solve your problems. I have everyone. My family does. You don't have to crawl behind me, everyone. So you look to God. You don't look to Washington, D.C. to solve your problems. You say, God, 
I need help. I'm worried about my children. What are some solutions? How can we be delivered from some of these fiery darts that are, you know, coming in on my home? And then you keep that little family close. And as you learn things, you teach that family and you, you pray together and you have that little devotional time where you study the Bible and you teach them a principle or a story of America. And you keep learning the, the Constitution from the viewpoint of the founding fathers, because that's, you know, that's, that's where prosperity occurred and that's where success and protection and, and, and health and wealth, you know, uh, were established. And, and, and as you study those miracles of America, you know, Benjamin Franklin petitioning the constitution delegates to pray because they were going to break apart. And we see the miracles that trans transpired in the early history of our country. We'll, we'll be reminded, wait a minute, God is still a God of miracles, you know, so let's, let's not get too doom, doom and gloom. And if we do those things, then God will put into our hearts. Well, what can, how can I be a part of the solution? How can I be a part of the healing? And it's going to be a little different for everyone. I just talked to a little mom um, that was on our healing of America seminar last time. And when she got about four or five lessons into our online cottage meeting, an opportunity presented itself for her to run for the school board. And she was like, oh, uh, I don't know if I know enough, but she did. And she won her primary and she said, I'm going to win the general election if I won that primary. And so I, I, I saw, I talked to another uh, young mama. Oh, I think I told you last night. And she said, you know, after listening to the online cottage meetings, I started a family devotional. And so, you know, the things that you're going to be inspired to do are, it's going to look a little different for each of you, but God will put into your heart you know, what you can do to be a part of healing of America, of healing your home, of your marriage, of relationships in your family. Remember, God in heaven did not establish this first free people in modern times here in, in this, this land to see it just collapse into oblivion. America will be saved and it will probably be because of mamas like you that are here today, that are learning, that are putting in the work. God will reward your efforts to do so. And by small and simple means, by the little mamas of America, he will rise up and the heavens will intervene and, and God will prevail and he will heal this land. So thank you girls so much. It is, oh, I always go a little over. These constitution lessons are a little bit longer than all the other lessons. But anyways, we will see you next week. Get your seminar number three, the attacks on the charter of freedom, the, the unhinging of America. And so I bid you adieu. Have a wonderful summer week until next week. Take care.